Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Freedom PT Podcast. Uh, this is Brady, and today I'm here with Jeff Verhagen. Jeff Verhagen is the manager of our Brookfield Clinic. Uh, he also helps the company out with um, the, the, some of the business aspects um, of being a private physical therapy clinic. Um, and so today we're going to get to know him, and then we're going to get into uh, feet orthotics and his approach to walking and gait mechanics. Um, he has special education, uh, continuing education in the foot and is very knowledgeable in that area. So we're going to get his take on that. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing? Great, Brady. Nice being here. (laughs) Good. Um, so how, Jeff, we'll just start with how long have you been with freedom? Um, and, uh, where did you start in physical therapy? Um, been with freedom almost, uh, uh, two decades, uh, started in, uh, 2000 when my daughter was just born. So basically whatever age she is, is how, how long uh, I've been with freedom. Um, started off being a PT, uh, in 1990. Uh, my first job was working in an, um, acute care, uh, inpatient, outpatient hospital based setting in, uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. I uh, was there for a few years, uh, moved back to Madison for about another uh, seven, um, and then ultimately um, joined Freedom in 2000 and have been here ever since. Okay. Um, I didn't know you worked in Appleton for a little bit. That's kind of where I grew up. Um, and so you started in that outpatient uh, or that uh, inpatient outpatient setting in a hospital. Um, what made you move? to freedom in terms of making that move to uh, outpatient orthopedic care? Is it, was that something that you knew you wanted to get into? Um, yes, uh, it, it was something we were required to do um, at uh, the hospital that I was at. Um, and uh, they then allowed us to kind of migrate into kind of our area of interest. I think every young therapist should have the opportunity to um, treat in multiple settings to get a flavor for what they enjoy doing. And also I think it builds some different experiences and appreciation for what, you know, some of our colleagues are doing in some of the other settings. Yeah, I know that's, um, I, I get that from a lot of, uh, a lot of our incoming PTs that we hire that are, um, out of PT school and they have all those experiences. Um, from what you can discern, is PT school changed a lot since you were in there? I, I mean, I would assume it's changed a little bit, but they seem to come in pretty well-rounded and have a, a decent base and already kind of pushing towards where they want to specialize almost. Yeah, I would say, and they, I think um, the modern-day PT is coming out uh, with, with a DPT, a doctor of PT. I think our basic education is, is essentially the same. Um, they spend a little bit more time in clinicals and um, are required to do a research project, um, which is, I think, a great exercise in understanding what it takes to, to do a, uh, a good research project. And more importantly, then, when you're out in practice, being able to pick up and read research with uh, a um, scientific mind. Okay. Um, and so you've been a PT for a while and you've been working in the, the orthopedic setting for a while. When you first came in, what were, um, your areas of interest in terms of treating and have they changed uh, throughout your time here at freedom? 
Um, have you really picked up on something that you've really gravitated towards that you found that helps the population and that you really enjoy treating? Well, I would say um, one of the things early on is I wanted to establish, you know, a strong science base um, to everything I, I did um, in treatment. So I wanted to establish the groundworks for solid decision making. And for me, that was to learn um, how to treat the spine and using the osteopathic assessment and treatment approach is what I've gravitated towards because it's a fabulous system and it works uh, um, really well. I think a person that can treat the spine really well, um, it just kind of segues into being able to be able to strongly um, be able to treat the extremities because I think if the, the proximal portion of your body, i.e. the spine, is not moving well, um, you're going to struggle with the extremities. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. And, um, I, we do place an emphasis, our owner likes to place an emphasis on all our therapists kind of taking that approach to being able to treat the spine. Um, cause I think we have a large population that has dysfunction there that's affecting other places in the body. I would just, as a follow up, uh, quickly Brady, um, to your question, um, of late, probably probably the past five years or so, um, have definitely gotten a, a strong interest in treating um, temporomandibular dysfunctions, um, partially because of our owner uh, and his interest in, in pushing us to uh, be able to treat that population, which has been a population that's been sadly underserved. Um, I get out uh, to several dental offices and, and give a PowerPoint presentation and one of the first slides in the presentation shows the dentist that the um, upper back and neck um, are very much involved in um, the mechanics of the, um, of the TMJ, the temporomandibular joint. So it's just another example of how if you can't competently and proficiently treat the spine, uh, even in the, in the TMJ, uh, you will not have success. So I, I just, again, I gravitate back towards if you can treat the spine really well, uh, you can almost treat anything. So I, I, have a, I have a little question about the TMJ stuff. So I hear you guys talk a lot about, I almost have, you almost have to convince dentists or uh, orthodontists that TMJ is a disorder that APTs can treat well um, and B, that it's something that they need to address in their population of patients and they're like the primary caregiver that might see these dysfunctions that people have um just could is is that still an issue or are people coming or are dentists and and uh, those kind of providers coming around on the whole tmj well i think in this community uh with the work we've done i mean we have probably uh, been out to a couple dozen dental offices um, over the past couple of years um i know uh, Mike Caraginas, the, the owner, has um, done some um, group presentations to dental groups, and um, he does uh, talks uh, nationally. Um, but I think that's really made um, made them aware and put us on the map uh, here in the Milwaukee area. Most dentists um, uh, are a little intimidated, I think, by treating the, 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 the TMD problems. Um, 
and they're happy to to make that referral and we're just simply educating them on what it is that that we do it's a very collaborative approach we're not saying that we can do it alone um, so I think dentists and PTs um, um, have to work together in order for an optimal outcome we just want people to be more aware because one of the statistics that's out there is that the average patient really isn't diagnosed with a TMD problem for about four years they, they go through um, seeing ENTs and dentists and neurologists, um, many times just floundering in the medical system. And so uh, our relationships with some of the ENTs and dentists have allowed some of these patients to get care a lot sooner. And I always say, when you have a small problem, it's a small fix. Um, let things fester for a longer period of time, it becomes a big problem and a heck of a lot uh, more of a challenge to, to help. All right. Um, so I, I want to segue just a little bit, um, and, and it's not a complete segue because we just talked about how we have to kind of network and co-treat with a lot of other providers. Um, and so it does become a little bit of, a, you know, being a private PT practice, we definitely have to focus on being a, a business part of it too, um, the way healthcare is in the U.S. And you have an MBA, um, along with your other training. And so I just want to go over um, what kind of led you to pursue some of the business aspects of PT um, and how that's helped you in um, being the manager of the clinic um, and really helping our company drive uh, forward and stay relevant in the healthcare market. I think my initial um, desire to, to go back and get my business degree was actually not so much PT-driven, but because um, PT is, is a fairly narrow um, profession, I mean, you can, do, you can do a lot of different things specialty-wise within the PT profession, but um, when you're a PT, you are always a PT. I think the average person ends up changing careers seven times or change his job seven times throughout their life, it may not necessarily be the case with a PT. So I felt kind of the need to, to get a business degree to um, give me some opportunity to, to make some changes in my life if I felt I wanted to. Um, I was at a crossroads years back, uh, whether or not I wanted to get into hospital administration. Um, but I really uh, enjoy... Um, treating patients and um, being able to help a, a private practice like this um, drive business and make the do strategic planning and, and um, continue to help it to grow uh, in the ever-changing market. So um, it's been a nice combination, um, and that's why I've stuck with the, the organization for as long as I have, and it's been, I think, uh, um, a neat... Um, experience to see over 20 years how uh, we've evolved as a as a practice yeah I always really enjoy getting to talk with you about that side of things as I also have some interest there so um, that's always been good so we're going to take a little bit of a break and then on uh, after the break we're going to go over uh, feet orthotics and your approach to uh, walking and running mechanics um, so we'll see you after the break This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing one-on-one -on -one comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services, including women's health, chronic pain treatment, TMJ, and more. 
with four locations in Fox Point, Grafton, Brookfield, and McGuanago, Wisconsin. More information at freedompt.com. Welcome back, everybody. Um, again, we're here with Jeff Verhagen, and we're talking feet today. So Jeff has special and continuing education focused on the foot, um, and he's going to share with us a little bit about uh, making orthotics, fitting people for orthotics, um, and how he kind of takes a look at their walking and their running and their mechanics um, and how he kind of attacks whatever symptoms a patient might be having from different angles um, and the different fixes that he can give the patient um, that's going to include both, you know, an exercise approach, a strengthening approach, um, and then also the making of an orthotic if necessary. Um, So let's just start with the orthotics themselves. So you do custom and semi-custom orthotics. Um, when are you going to prescribe someone an orthotic and when are you going to go fully custom versus semi-custom? Um, custom orthotics are expensive. So, um, what I like to try to do is make sure that lower extremity biomechanics, any sort of weakness or tightness is dealt with ahead of time. And, um, in a good majority of those patients, uh, many of their foot problems can go away and they can get away with an over-the-counter product just fine. Um, when we clear out some of the biomechanical faults and they're still having some of their, their um, problems in their foot or their knee, ankle, um, hip, back, um, then we start looking at um, talking about uh, investing in a uh, custom orthotic. Uh, the good news with the custom orthotics that um, that I get people into, it, it has more to do with the lab. Um, it's a product that's going to be guaranteed for life. So in many cases, I'll have patients come back to me and say, gosh, I need to get a new orthotic. And I'll, I'll ask them, how is it working for you? I mean, I had a lady... Uh, five years later, say, oh, my gosh, these are great and wonderful. I, I need to get another pair. And, in fact, um, the actual shell of the orthotic, which is the prescription portion of the of the device, was just fine. We just had to resurface it. So it was an inexpensive cost to do that. She was really excited, and um, it saved everybody a lot of money. And she knew then that she was going to have the same product that had been serving her really well for the past five years. So I... I just have a little bit of a question about um, the over-the-counter or the semi-custom kind of orthotics that a, you can get fitted for here. Um, I know we we have a few therapists that use, I think, the Vasily um, orthotics mm-hmm. um, that you can kind of add attachments to and, and kind of fit to what you need. And then there's also like the scanners that you see at Walmart where they can kind of give you an, an idea of what kind of orthotic, how much arch support you need. Um, when you're doing, if, if you have an unlimited source of funds, is it always better to go custom or is that not always necessarily the case? Well, it's not necessarily something that's always needed. I mean, if you have a, something that's custom, it's, it's putting your foot in the ideal optimal position and you could argue that that's going to be a injury prevention sort of um, approach. 
Um, people aren't going to run around and seek a custom orthotic for injury, injury prevention. Usually they're going to have a symptom and pain, and then they're going to be seeking care. I think you'll see some of the elite athletes, the multi-million dollar athletes being in, in custom orthotics and even custom type of shoes um, because, you know, uh, a degree or two of, of a problem with how the foot hits the ground can really affect their performance. Um, so in those individuals, we tend to see that more just as a as kind of a performance enhancement and injured prevention. But I think the average person usually is coming in, uh, you know, seeking help because of injury. But um, yeah, I mean, in answer to your question, you know, if we could all afford it, yeah, custom orthotics are a great thing. Okay. But over the counter, you know, products um, by themselves with with decent foot gear, you know, can be you know the next best thing. Okay. Um, so let's get into a little bit of how you make them. Um, so I, you've actually made me orthotics and they work great. Um, and you scan my foot and then you essentially send that scan into a lab and then they're able to fabricate, um, with the materials of your choosing is, is that, that's what I understand the process is. Is that correct? Uh, it is. Um, and that's probably the perception of what patients, um, interpret, but there is a uh, kind of a biomechanical exam that goes on um, prior to the scanning process um, where we look at your gait, we look at some of your range of motion and strength faults, and we actually get in and touch your foot and, and take measurements to see um, where the structural faults are. Um, and the scan is really the last thing we do. The scan essentially is um, more to get an impression of the size of the foot and kind of the, the shape of the foot. Are you high arched? Are you not high arched? That sort of thing. Um, but the actual pre prescription is not necessarily driven off of the uh, scan. It's driven off of the exam. I think that's the biggest mistake where some people make is they just, you know, they scan the foot, send it in, and expect the lab to make something. And um, that that just isn't, uh, in my opinion, um, the way to do it. You, you take your measurements and develop your prescription off of the patient being in the office, and the scan is just there to help the lab get an idea of, of, of the size and the shape of the foot and, and um, using the information from the clinician to, um, to come up with a product that's going to be uh, optimal for the patient. Okay. Um, and so the, the other two methods that I've, I've seen are uh, there's a biofoam um, kind of mold that they can take of your foot, correct? And then mm -hmm. there's also right. um, plaster casting, um, which I understand you used to use and think that that was the best way to go around. So A, why did you change to the scanning method? And then why um, did you do away with the bio or why did you never really like the biofoam method? And why did you go away from the plaster cast? Um, I initially was taught how to do it with the plaster cast. And I think uh, the idea behind the plaster cast, again, is you are touching the foot, you're doing your exam ahead of time, you're getting um, an extremely optimal position of the foot because when you cast, you're casting in a non-weight-bearing position. The patient is on their stomach with the foot hanging off the edge of the table, and you're able to control everything as you're doing the casting, and then you can simulate weight-bearing by pushing 
uh, up on the patient's fourth and fifth metatarsals, and it gives a very accurate positioning of the foot when the ankle is in its neutral position. Um, I was at a conference probably 20 to 25 years ago, and I asked the president of the podiatry society at the time for the state of Wisconsin, I said, you know, I'm very curious as to why um, not everyone does um, plaster casting um, and why biofoam is used. And he rubbed his fingers together and I said, what, are, what do you mean? He goes, time and money. Um, it's more time and, um, of course, time is money. And so the biofoam uh, was not uh, uh, something that he, uh, at the time, was a real fan of. I personally think, and it's one of the reasons why I was not a fan of scanners, because the scanners that were out in years past were all hor uh, were horizontal, so you had to actually place the foot um, directly on top of the scanner um, on, a, on a horizontal plane. And it's next to impossible, in my opinion, to have the foot be in its neutral position. Um, and the same thing with biofoam. In order to get an impression of the foot, you actually have to kind of put some pressure into the foot, and then you're losing the, the neutrality of the foot and the amount of distance uh, or the amount of degrees that you might have to use in order to put the foot in its optimal position for function. So it can be done, um, and I think can be done successfully for some patients. I think the ones that are done and done successfully are probably patients that probably could have gotten away with just an over-the-counter product. But I think what the that president of the podiatry society was saying to me at the time is it, you're, you're, you're going to get a much more accurate um mold of the foot by using plaster. And it's one of the reasons why I used it for so, so long and really uh, did not want to use um, scanners. And the lab that I used came out with a, a, a higher technology scanner that has more bells and whistles and all that really wasn't tremendously important to me. What was more important is was a, it was a horizontal scanner in which I was, a, or I'm sorry, a, a vertical, vertical scanner, which I was able to control the foot position. And then by placing it on the, the vertical position, we were getting a true image of the position of the foot and the, and, and, uh, um, the, the faults of the foot when it was in uh, when the ankle was in a neutral position, I think you lose that when you um, step down on a horizontal scanner or you step down on a biofoam. Okay. Um, and just to be clear, biofoam is that it's like comes in a box and it's that pink material that you step down into and it takes an impression of your foot. That's what we're talking about. Yes, okay. it is. Yes. All right. Um, and so once you eventually get these these molds taken or the, the scan in this case, um, you send it into a lab. Um, and obviously you're giving your input as to how the foot should be supported. Um, are the materials going to differ from person to person or by activity? Um, or is the, uh, shape or size of the, um, orthotic going to be impacted by the kind of material that you use? That's a great question, and the answer is yes to all of it. Um, the activity that the patient uh, performs will certainly dictate um, 
some of the, the features on the product to make them more successful. If you're a side-to-side athlete, we might do something a little bit different. If you're a straightforward athlete, we, we might uh, not do things that we do with a side-to-side athlete. The um, body weight of the individual is very important. Um, we use different um, strengths of polycarbon um, or different sorts of plastics or, or foams that, um, based on the patient's weight, will um, hold up differently. So, you know, I wouldn't put a 175-pound uh, male or female uh, into the type of product I would a 300-pound football player lineman. Uh, so that um, is a big factor. Um, the amount of cushioning that I might put on top of the actual shell that supports the foot in the correct position is um, something that's very important. Um, uh, the older population, I tend to be a little less aggressive in my um, prescriptions and my posting and tend to use material that's quite a bit softer. So there's a greater um, compliance with its use. My name goes on the back of the product, and uh, over 25 years of, um, of doing custom orthotics, um, um, I want to have an optimal outcome for that patient, so I do everything I can uh, to make sure that, that, uh, that they have a successful product and it resolves what they uh, want um, out of that product. And then the only other thing is um, the type of, getting back to the type of activity, I mean, if you if you feel like you need this in a dress shoe, uh, we may not put a full extension on the product. So the shell of the product, which is the, the harder material or, or kind of the portion that, you know, supports the foot um, is the most important part. The extensions um, are less important. I like to have a full extension for an athlete so that they can take out whatever is in their shoe and slip that in and, and, and not miss a beat. But that may not be, um, uh, that may not be possible in a dress shoe. So we, we, um, we go with something that maybe isn't quite as optimal, but it's the best that we can do uh, for the fact that the person is going to be using a dress shoe. Okay. Um, and then, so on top of these being very customizable, um, obviously getting custom, they're going to be more expensive than something that's over the counter. Um, but it is something that we can find ways to make it affordable for the average person. There are insurance plans that do cover orthotics um, in ways that you can kind of help manage the cost. And like you said, the ones that you make are guaranteed for life. So, um, you can make changes throughout the lifetime of the orthotic and, and make that last um, for the patient. So it's a, sometimes it's going to be a worthwhile investment for somebody, correct? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes patients um, um, will ask if we have coverage and, or if their insurance has coverage. We do that as a courtesy for all of our patients here at Freedom. Um, we, we check on benefits, and it's, it makes us somewhat unique because some places you go, I mean, you have to know your benefits. We just kind of feel like that's something that we want to do for our patients, so um, the cost and everything is up front. Um, and if they actually have a musculoskeletal problem, um, the actual exam portion of um, 
kind of getting a custom orthotic can be covered through insurance because they, they have a, a particular diagnos- diagnosis that may need a custom orthotic. So the, the exam portion can be covered. And, and in many cases, a lot of insurance will cover the product. Um, and if we don't, we, we end up actually having a fairly discounted um, price for, um, for our patients. And um, uh, from what I can appreciate in the community, when a patient comes in with a product, uh, from other professions out there in different organizations, uh, we tend to be uh, below the median in price. Okay. Um, and just curious, how might this process of getting an orthotic be different in a podiatrist's office than a, a PT's office? And when should you see both? And when should you see one? And when should, should you see the others? Can, do you have any answers for any of those? Well, you know, I, I, I don't really think getting uh, somebody into a custom orthotic necessarily is rocket science. And that's no offense to my colleagues out there that do a lot of work with that. I think the, the challenge or the skill comes in looking at the rest of the body above the shin. And um, I think my podiatrist friends out there, um, you know, they do a lot, they, they, they do foot surgeries and a ton of wonderful things, but I, I don't know if, uh, well, I know that they're not a physical therapist, so they're not looking at some of the things that I may be looking at higher up the kinetic chain that can have an effect on how well that uh, product is going to work. Um, I do have several patients that come in with a customer orthotic and say that they don't like it. They throw it in the closet because they'll, they'll say, well, it hurts my foot, it hurts my arch. And um, I look at the product and say, you know what, uh, your doctor did a great job on this. It's a fabulous product, but uh, there's some things that I'm picking up in my uh, osteopathic or biomechanical exam that if we fix and we can uh, restore, that product is going to work really, really well for you. And I would say the majority, of t- not more than the majority, um, I'd say uh, close to 100% of the time when we're able to address those issues with the patient, uh, they like the product then, and they will continue to use it. So that's where I think I'd like to see our professions work a little bit more closely. I don't mind uh, if uh, it really, to me, doesn't matter who does the customer orthotic. I mean, it, it still has to be done in a uh, scientific way, but um, I think it's more about the the rest of the exam that can make that successful. And I would hope that you know, the clinicians out there, uh, i.e. podiatrists or podorthotists that are getting people into products and they're finding that it's maybe not successful for the patients, that they refer them to a PT to maybe look through the biomechanical kinetic chain to see what we can do to maybe make that product more effective. Yeah, that's one of the great things I think um, I continue to hear from therapists at our company is that you need, you know, you might have, your, your problem is manifesting here and you're getting pain here but it might not be because something is completely wrong here you probably have other contributing factors that we have to address for us to get your pain to go away and for your body to move um, pain-free and we have to address the system and again we don't want to offend any podiatrist or any other healthcare provider we're just saying we need to find ways to work more closely to make sure that we're not only just addressing the foot, but we're also addressing other areas of the body. And that's just a way that we can connect more as healthcare providers to help our patients um, in the long term. 
Um, and so, uh, do you have any kind of interesting or challenging cases, um, treating a foot condition that was, you know, you kind of had to use that osteopathic approach and take a unique, uh, approach to treating someone like that, that's got foot issues. Yeah. I think, you know, the bottom line is anybody that comes in that, that, that is having, um, maybe challenges with their product, not working as well as it should. And, and, and the product looks pretty good. Um, you go up the chain, you look into the pelvis and the low back and you you find osteopathic dysfunctions that very often create inhibitory weakness in the muscles that are stabilizers to keep the leg and the whole kinetic chain from rolling in, um, or pronating is the term. Um, when those issues aren't addressed, you roll down on a product that is holding your foot in what appears to be a very good position, but then the product hurts because you're slamming on it. So we can, through our osteopathic assessment and treatment, um, get rid of and eliminate some of the, the inhibitory weakness that occurs, get a patient strong and stable, and get them back uh, moving again and having the product um, be pretty successful. In, in answer to your question, you know, some of the more challenging cases, um, just to take it a step further, even beyond going up the kinetic chain, uh, involving the nervous system. I recall treating an occupational therapist in the past that had been uh, looked at by uh, orthopedic surgeons and podiatrists and other um, PTs, and she was still um, having a, 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 a great challenge with her issues. And uh, without getting into great detail, one of the things that was picked up, she had unilateral plantar fasciitis, and one of the things that was picked up is that she had neural tension signs on that side of her body. Um, so when a person has neural tension signs, uh, it's pretty typical that you're not able to step through in your gait, and as a result, it'll, it'll make your calf muscle appear tight. When your calf muscle's tight, you're going to overpronate and um, create some stress on the fascia, and that was what was creating her pain. So the solution actually was to resolve the neural tension and get the body uh, moving in such a way and giving her exercises in which she was able to um, floss or mobilize her nervous system um, to get rid of wherever the hang-up was in the nervous system because that travels all the way down to the sural nerve, uh, which is... Um, uh, the nerve that innervates, one of the nerves that innervates the plantar fascia. So it was fascinating to me that um, that uh, she presented that way and that we had the success we did because within several visits, uh, her plantar fasciitis had gone away. But I was the benefit of everyone else's failure, if you will, because everyone else kind of went through the algorithm of how we would classically treat um, that problem. And that's why I knew, and I was privileged enough to say, well, I'm not going to repeat what, uh, others have done already. So that's why I was kind of looking under some different, uh, different stones and had an optimal outcome. The other quick, uh, scenario that I want to get in here, and it's, um, it's something that I see where, um, it's, it's an important issue. I had a patient come to me probably with about six pairs of orthotics, probably spent about $3,000 on those products and still was very frustrated uh, with her um, um, 
foot problem, and I believe it was a plantar fasciitis. And in going through my exam, she um, presented with actually a relatively high arch, um, which, uh, as I further evaluated, um, led me to the fact that she had a uh, big toe, uh, or what we call a plantar flexed rigid first ray. So when her ankle was in a neutral position, rays two through five were um, were in what's called the varus position or off the horizontal, and her big toe was down, and it was stuck and rigid and wouldn't come up to meet the other uh, two through uh, five uh, metatarsals or rays. Um, so the solution for her was to actually, uh, and, and her products were great. The only thing that was missing is a first-rate cutout. So what we did is just created uh, what the other uh, products had were appropriate posting for the rear foot and the forefoot to hold the foot um, and then the ankle in a neutral position. And we cut out a little place for her big toe to rest down. And so when she went from heel strike to foot flat, she was able to get equal distribution of forces throughout her foot as she picked up her heel and towed off. And as a result of doing that, she didn't have to compensate through her gait at the mid-stance of her gait and eliminated her pain. So um, that was a neat situation. We see that uh, quite often. And you alluded to earlier, um, Vassilian Dannenberg products will... Vassilian and Dannenberg, um, it's not a special product. There are two podiatrists that have come up with uh, a product that has, they call it first-ray technology. And what's pretty neat about the product is that they recognize that this is a problem, and they've created a uh, over-the-counter device that we can pull um, pull pieces of the, the orthotic off in order to have the, the, the big toe have a place to to rest down while the rest of the foot is supported up. And so that's been a really great um, opportunity for me to be able to um, more effectively deal with that problem without having the patient to have to spend a $350 because it's a typically it's about a, a $40 to $60 product that they can get um, um, by going online. So that's been a, a, a real nice help also. So uh, shortly I want to get into just a little bit of, um, you know, there's all these book com- the footwear companies coming out with um, kind of the most, um, they try to make their shoes the most supportive you're going to find on the market. Um, you can end up spending a lot of money on running shoes and training shoes and things like that. <coughs> Uh, when we refer to foot gear, what exactly does that does that mean? That's that's like extra equipment that go uh, on your shoes to to help make some of those corrections. Well, I, I I'm, not, I'm not sure I fully understand your question, but I do know that there are um, there's been a trend in the um, the shoe companies to make shoes. Um, look actually a little less supportive. And and basically what that is is they're changing the ramp of the shoe. So back in the day, you'd have these thick shoes uh, with big, big, thick heels on them. And the the idea was, you know, we want to have a lot of cushion to help with the foot. And um, 
the term is called a ramp. So basically from the, the, the back of the shoe to the front of the shoe, it's measured in millimeters. And the shoes that I grew up running in had typically a 15 millimeter ramp, big cushions. And um, if you were the type of runner that was a heel striker, that is absolutely the type of shoe that you would want to be in. Um, but what's happening now in the running world anyway is that uh, runners are realizing that being a heel striker is not the most efficient way to run, and they've kind of transitioned into more of a uh, mid-strike, uh, forefoot strike type of running, and as a result um, have made their shoes a little different with actually uh, ramps that go all the way down from a 15 to basically uh, zero ramp. And certainly if you had a zero ramp in your shoe, um, it would be painful to run um, in a heel strike type of scenario. So that's a, that's a whole, really a whole nother topic. Um, it's quite intriguing if, if you wanted to go and try to become more of a mid striker, um, and change your foot gear. Um, I would say about every three to six millimeters that you're going to go down and ramp, it, it's important to probably take, um, uh, several months to do that because you can you can hurt yourself if you go down too quickly. Um, if you are a heel striker, the 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 um, in other words, if you started to run barefoot, you would not run as a heel striker because it would hurt. You would it would force you to run mid striker forefoot, and we know that you become more of an efficient runner. And in fact, there are studies out that you actually use oxygen more efficiently and there's less injury. So there is that push um, to, to go to that. And of course, uh, one of the courses I was at years back, I raised my hand and said, you know, uh, if I'm a smart physical therapist, um, why would I have to buy special shoes if all I have to do is, is to run uh, more on my um, midfoot uh, to prevent injuries and to uh, increase my oxygen efficiency. And the answer was, well, in the studies that they've done, if you are running a marathon, you may start off being a mid-striker, but you're going to go back to what you're familiar with when you get tired and, and you become a heel striker. So um, the transition to the, the, the smaller ramps forces you to be more of a mid-striker. And the other thing that um, I always tell my patients also is, that if you're a, a heel striker, you're going to typically have about 120 strides per minute, um, and your your natural mid strikers or four foot strikers are going to be anywhere probably between 160 and 180. So in order to become more of a, a mid striker, one of the things that you would want to do is um, um, increase your stride, and you can do that. Um, in training by getting a little metrodome on your, a little app on your phone or uh, an app that changes your music so that you can follow a beat and that will automatically make you uh, do more strides per minute and it will force you into becoming more of a mid-striker which in the long run is going to probably prevent you from having as many injuries and uh, make you more an efficient runner and that's why you see this trend of tennis shoes running shoes looking a little bit different. As far as walking, though, um, walking's walking. And um, no matter how you slice it, we 
land on our heels. So if you're just a walker, I would say still sticking with a comfortable light shoe with a with a good heel cushion is, is still the answer. So I, I want to tie this a little bit back into kind of what you had said about orthotics and you're making these orthotics very specifically to prevent injury for athletes and things like that. Um, when would you recommend using an orthotic uh, for performance reasons versus maybe some of those athletes that are either lateral athletes, side-to-side athletes, or basketball players versus soccer players, uh, that kind of thing. Um, When should they be in an orthotic that's very supportive and that might actually add a little bit of cushion that would add to your shoe drop um, compared to when they should be kind of training to be that midfoot striker using less of a drop on a shoe. Do you, do you have an opinion on that or is that? Well, that's a tough question because, you know, you can, you could look at research and it's going to, you're going to have 50% of people saying, you know, be a natural runner, orthotics aren't helpful. Um, and you're going to have another 50% saying the opposite. Unfortunately, we live in a society where we work eight, 10 hours a day and we have to wear, um, dress shoes or shoes that are presentable with with heels on them and so um, I would say um, for the average runner that does a few few days a week they might need to be in more of a um, um, a supportive shoe and and have their foot be in the perfect custom position um, or neutral position for prevention of injury but when you think back to some of the greatest runners in the world, um, kind of from more third world countries, uh, there, there, a lot of them ran barefoot. So there wasn't a real lot of support and their, their foot just adapted, um, to, to whatever, um, whatever it did. And uh, very often the bottom of the foot was like leather. And so, but these are also individuals that foot care wasn't worn. And so the thought behind that is you would, you would adapt and, and do just fine. Some of these athletes, these great athletes, ended up getting contracts. And this was a story that was told to me. Um, so um, I'm just trying to repeat what, what I was told. Um, they get a Nike or Adidas contract, and they, they have to wear the shoe. And um, they actually, having the foot in more of a supportive position actually created more injuries for them because they, they got their body so hardened with adapting to some of the um, abnormalities that by correcting them, they, they just ultimately kind of didn't do as well. So that's why the answer is kind of, it depends. Because, you know, if you're just the um, kind of the leisure runner type person, uh, I still think um, y- you might need support. Again, I'm kind of of the belief that I don't think about custom orthotics as my first line of defense. I start looking at mechanics and uh, the type of shoe that they would that's most effective for the type of runner they are. If they want to get into changing their whole style of running, we'll get into that. But um, but I think for the average runner, like for myself, I'd say. I want my foot in in a in the, the most neutral position possible because I know it's going to keep my body in greater alignment up top, and the better alignment, the better my muscles recruit, 
the stronger I am and the more effective the product works for me. So great question. Um, that's a, that's a can of worms that can go either way. Yeah. But I, I think that's, that's a lot, something that everyone has to realize too, is that you're, uh, whatever it may be, whether it's your individual athletics, um, your activities, your healthcare, your fitness, it's all got to be personal for you. You've got to do what works for you. Um, and we're just here to kind of help you find what that is. Um, and I think that's a good approach to it. So I, th- I think we're going to end there for right now. I think uh, there are some topics that if you ever wanted to, to talk more about footwear and things like that, we could definitely do that. Um, but if you're a listener and uh, you have any questions for Jeff, just uh, reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, and we can try to get any of your an- any answers for you or uh, get you to a proper uh, podiatrist, PT, doctor, whatever you may need to take care of foot and running and walking mechanic issues that you may have. So thanks for listening and have a wonderful day. This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing exceptional one-to-one hands-on care to the greater Milwaukee area for over 25 years. Our physical and occupational therapists prepare custom plans for your condition to relieve pain and improve performance. Allow us to help you enjoy more freedom at freedompt.com.